We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, so uh, here we go, episode 10 of the LSQ podcast. What's up? It's Jenny LSQ. Man, I can't believe we're already 10 episodes in. The time flies when you're having fun, and I sure have been. It's It's been awesome to be able to bring you um, these in-depth conversations with some of my favorite artists. And if you've missed recent episodes, uh, including interviews with Danielle Heim, Tegan and Sarah, Spoon's Britt Daniel, Angel Olson, and a whole bunch of others, well... All nine of those are also still available, so get in there. And I'm open to any feedback you might have, so feel free to reach me on Twitter, at JennyLSQ. The main event in this episode is a conversation with Hot Chip's Alexis Taylor. It was awesome getting to meet up with him for our first really in-depth conversation um, ever. I've only interviewed Hot Chip briefly in the past, so it was nice getting to dig in with Alexis about his creative evolution. And the occasion for this was uh, Alexis was in L.A. leading up to the release of his new solo album, Beautiful Thing, which is an awesome LP and out now. And also, actually, Alexis is currently doing U.S. solo dates. So if you're listening to this in time, try and get out and see one of those shows alexistaylorsolo.com has the info. And after the interview with Alexis, since you know every episode has something from my interview archive, and since the Dave Matthews Band just put out a new album, I'll share a 2009 clip uh, of a conversation I had with Dave leading up to the release of their album Big Whiskey and the Grugrux King. More on that later. Um, thank you so much, Alexis Taylor, for joining me. On my pleasure. LSQ. And for meeting up while you're here in L.A. doing some hot chip stuff and getting ready to go rehearse for shows in support of your new solo album, Beautiful Thing. So congrats on that. Thank you. It's a beautiful album, for lack of a <laughs> less obvious description. You know, listeners might not be aware that Alexis, separate from Hot Chip, has been putting out solo albums for about a decade now. His first solo LP came out exactly 10 years ago. And... When this urge strikes you to put together a collection of your own music and to start recording it, I mean, is it something that you go in intending to do, or do you just find that songs that don't feel like they can wait for a hardship album start to bubble up? These days, because I've been doing a bit more solo music, more frequently recording solo records, I I suppose I've got into a bit of a rhythm of working on something and thinking right I'd like to make something else that follows that quite soon and I am actually in the middle of making a hot chip record right now so it's not that that isn't continuing 
I just had the time and the space and the kind of inclination to be getting on with making new records on my own. So it used to be that I would be, um, you know, not sure whether a song was maybe going to work in Hot Chip or maybe it would be better for about group or for solo music. But now I think it's a bit more that I'm intentionally writing songs for a solo record or writing songs for a Hot Chip record. Right. Um, and there's hopefully enough time and sort of headspace to do that and do justice to, to each project. Whereas initially I didn't really know I would just be making whatever beginnings of ideas and they could they could have gone anywhere really depending on you know who was who was around if i was in like a uh period of collaborating with joe it would inevitably be some new hot chip music right um, things have slightly changed over time and um i think that i have a a bit of a clearer idea of you know what where the music might end up, I suppose. Meaning just sort of like a distinct sense of what a hardship song sounds like. Yeah, and also the more I do stuff on my own, I think the more I enjoy the songwriting being collaborative in Hot Chip, which it has always been, but on every Hot Chip record, as well as the collaborative songs, there would be ones that I've written entirely or Joe's written entirely or like, you know, 90% by one or the other. Um, but now I feel a bit like one of the things that's always been fun about Hot Chip is that it's two or three different songwriters kind of collaborating and it's encouraging each of us to do something that we wouldn't do on our own and that perhaps leaves more room for the solo things to be more solo, to be, you know, so solely written on your own. Uh, all of that might sound really kind of obvious, but I guess it's taken me a while to fall into a way of working on these different projects. When you first started playing music, did you did you always have a few different outlets for the kinds of things you might make? I mean, whether it was music or any other kind of creative endeavors. Right at the beginning um, of when I was songwriting, it was me on my own and I would play solo shows with a guitar um, and sing and I met Joe at school well we met when we were 11 or 12 but when he began to be interested in music he was initially um, wanting to record my songs that was kind of how we how we first collaborated he was producing or recording them on his four track and I was a songwriter and then we began to write songs together so at that early stage I just had a solo outlet which did involve gigging and recording stuff on my own um, going into a couple of friends studios and demoing just a voice and guitar stuff and then I sort of moved away from that once Hot Chip began and I, I actually felt at the time like I got a bit tired of the quite uh it was that period where everybody had heard a Jeff Buckley record and I felt like as good as he was and as much as I liked his dad, Tim Buckley, I kind of wanted to move away from this very sort of traditional way of making music, like a, a voice and a guitar, a troubadour or whatever. I just felt like I'd exhausted that in terms of what I wanted to listen to, modern modern music that was like that and in terms of making music. And I think that's why I enjoyed what Hot Chip was doing what we were doing together which was kind of it involved songwriting but it was um exploring different production techniques and not telling people 
in a very straightforward way how they should read it emotionally. So it was a bit of a mixture of some humour and some very serious sort of like mm. direct emotional stuff going on. And that was, to me, that was a, a break from the rather earnest sort of scene that was going on ar around me at the time and I just felt like I didn't really I remember thinking I can't get up on a stage with an acoustic guitar anymore that's just it seems I'd, I must have just grown out of thinking that was relevant to to, to me it's interesting because there's uh what's the name of the song on beautiful thing roll the tape is that what it's roll on blank roll tapes roll on blank yeah. tapes you know where you you, you talk about sing about uh, you know whether uh, electronic drums, whether computer drums can have any emotion or not. And my read listening to it is that you're being facetious. Yeah. Because if anything, you know, a lot of the music that you've made exists to prove yeah. that to be not true. But I'm curious about that song and, and what you've just said. It seems like you've had a, you, you have fully, um, kind of remade your brain to understand uh, uh, other ways of communicating emotion and music through doing music as hot chip. Yeah. Um, well, roll on blank tapes references a, a sticker that says drum machines have no soul. Okay. Which was a, a real kind of organization um, in, I guess, this early 80s. It's a sticker that I, I I just found it like in a record shop, but it's a you know an old sticker that's part of a campaign that's anti drum machines. <laughs> and it's okay. called the Society for Rehumanization of Drumming or something, or the Rehumanization of Music. And I just found that a really funny idea that, and I love drum machines so much that I wanted to. Well, initially I made a song called Drum Machines Have No Soul, which. Um, I began making it a few years ago and it's not on this new album but then Roll On Blank Tapes just kind of references that song. Right. Um, and yeah, I was saying with some irony that Drum Machine... I, I, I'm just quoting right. but I knew that people listening to it or hope that people listening to it would would hear the drum machines in the track or hear drum machines throughout the album or yeah. hear drum machines throughout the history of Hot Chip Records and my own records and know that I often tour with a piano and a drum machine with that very sticker on it. You know, I, I love drum machines. So it's And so were you, you know, as, as you're describing these early days of you and Joe collaborating, I mean, is that, were, did you already love drum machines going into Hot Chip even though you were, you were translating it into Troubadour type stuff? Yeah, I, I, um, I did. But what, I was, what was your first drum machine? I didn't have a standalone drum machine initially. I had like a... Um, sort of organ a Farfisa organ that I got given by my grandma um, and that had a lovely sort of drum machine section to it so I would often like play thanks keep. grandma yeah did uh, your, your grandma had a Farfisa that was hers that she had played yeah she must have played it it was just it was hers in, in the house I don't know how it's much groovy, she played though. it's still in my parents house now <laughs> um, and then over the years I've bought lots of different ones some are sort of step sequence of drum machines and others are still that that kind of old-fashioned sort of 70s style where you just put it on and play with it right um and that's kind of how i have made lots of music myself over the years i really like the the one that you hear in sly stone records um 
and that kind of sound I mean you also hear that in like Brian Eno records and things and it's just a very pleasing drum machine sound and the, the more modern drum machines Hot Chip we began using like Machine Drum by Electron that was like a big part of our sound for early shows which is a more kind of German techno sort of sounding drum machine and then the MPC we, we use that for a lot, a lot of live gigs and for some of the hot chip recordings but personally I, I tend to play with this thing called a um, Bentley Rhythm Ace which there was a band named after that drum machine I use that a lot and can, the, you, ri- can you write to just a uh, just, just a drum machine yeah I tend to use it from quite early on in the writing and recording process it's kind of instantly gr- gives an interesting atmosphere to a track and I often run them through a delay pedal or you know reverb or just kind of do something to to give me a bit of a starting point sonically what was your first instrument uh piano right piano and keyboards at home and so you, did you take lessons or I had piano lessons uh from seven and I can't remember exactly how old I was when I stopped but I just did them for about maybe four years or something. And then did you like it at the time? I wanted to learn. I asked for lessons, but I think I was always asking the teacher if I could bring my book of like the best of prints or something like that that was kind of pop music rather than the Bartok that I was learning. And I, I also quite enjoyed the Bartok, but I never felt like I was getting particularly good at playing it. Right. So I kind of got something from the lessons I learned about the chords and and harmony and I could read music a little bit at the time Um, but I kind of got as far as I wanted with the lessons and then I said I'm going to stop having the lessons and just play music I think I was enjoying improvising more than reading music yeah it's it's interesting to me how common a thing that is with uh, songwriters that I've spoken to is that taking formal lessons um, becomes uninter- less interesting fairly quickly once you know how to do it and you just already it's a it's I don't know I think it's awesome to think about a, a 10 year old thinking like, or you know however old it sounds like yeah. you might have been thinking like I'm just gonna improvise now yeah <laughs> you know what I mean it's yeah. sort of like well that is sort of the that's how you got here yeah I think for me um, my uncle played piano and basically improvised and he was sort of seen in my family as, you know, if I talked about the way that he played, which I found really exciting, and he, he was a bit of a sort of role model to me, just seeing this person improvising at the piano rather than just reading. My parents tended to think, oh, you know, he didn't finish his lessons, or he, he just, he's playing a bit of bark, but doing it his way, and like there was something wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Whereas I must have been attracted to the idea that he was just playing for sort of pleasure and right. creating sound. Um, so I, I saw you know I saw that as maybe that was kind of slightly inspiring that you didn't have to do it a certain way. Also, my brother, my older brother Angus, started. He taught himself guitar and started playing and writing songs, and so then he taught me how to play the guitar. And I didn't ever have formal lessons in the guitar, and I'm still not particularly. I wouldn't really know what I'm doing on the guitar except for the, the names of a few chords. But I can't. I I don't know the scales. I've only learnt it you know the the little that he taught me um but i remember that being quite important to me that i i i've been doing these formal piano lessons and i felt a little bit restricted in terms of what i could do on the piano 
because I knew what you were meant to do mm. by certain rules. Mm-hmm. And the guitar was an opportunity to only work on music that you like the sound of because you didn't necessarily know what to do right. or what shapes right. to go to. And I've right. spent a long time, you know, doing different tunings on the guitar and um listening. You didn't have to worry you were doing it wrong. Exactly. So I th- I remember feeling like the guitar suddenly allowed me to write songs in a way that was more interesting to me mm. than piano. And then I went back to keyboard at some point and, and right do something else it's a bit more fun so how how old were you when you were starting to write songs on guitar I think I'm probably was like I think I was 14 when I wrote a song on the keyboard and maybe like 15 or something on on guitar and at that point did you just feel like well I should try and write something or was it or did you just feel moved by a song to write it I felt moved to write songs I didn't I never thought I should try and write something I always think that's interesting. I've met lots of musicians who are so good at making music or playing music, but some of whom aren't necessarily songwriters. They're more contributors to playing live music in a band or something. And I felt like I just I just had to write some songs. Mm-hmm. It was starting to feel like a way that I wanted to express something. And so I really... I've I've not really changed from feeling like that since that first moment of doing it so initially I was just writing instrumentally in a, a band at school and my friend was the singer and then I, f- I kind of wrote something and felt like I had to try and sing that myself and so it was yeah it was quite sort of hard to avoid whatever these feelings were I was having and and I that was when I started singing and I had this slightly weird androgynous sounding voice and didn't really know what to make of that but I just thought well I'll try it anyway you know and that it's just it's just been something I've been doing since then um and it the songwriting that happens now is very automatic as well it's just I don't kind of try and write I don't I don't work every day I just kind of wait for ideas to to pop into my head and they I what I do do is record whatever those ideas are as soon as possible I record them on my phone or record them in a demo form at the computer but just never really let any of them go unrecorded in case they turn into a good one right and so i mean would we recognize the the sort of your kind of melodic tendencies or or vocal tendencies if somehow miraculously we had a recording of you know one of these earliest songs that you wrote i mean do you feel like there's something in even your most naive early attempts at songwriting attempts is not the right word for it they were actual songs. Yeah. But you know what I mean? Where where you're like, oh, that's a thing that, you know, that's a thing that I still do. Yeah, I can I can hear that. I found a tape recently. I wasn't particularly kind of comfortable listening to it. I found it, you know, quite sort of teen, <laughs> teenage and embarrassing. <laughs> you're like, oh, God. But melodically, or the chords, I was like, yeah, I, that's quite good. I, I, I think that was wor- you know worthy of me trying to do that at the time and and maybe i can hear similarities um i also remember and i don't know why i'm focusing on this era in particular but i do remember the sort of change from writing on a guitar to writing with joe in hot chip and my friend who also wrote songs and his older brother wrote songs whose band um, toured or, or played show not toured just played in like local venues at the same time as as I was doing that as a, a teenager and at school 
I remember him saying to me, play me one of your new songs. But I'd reached this point where I could no longer play them on a guitar because I'd written them in collaboration with Joe and we'd used Cubase to record them and made all of the sounds with a mixture of keyboards that were in Joe's room and drum programming that Joe had done. And it was just something that didn't translate back to an acoustic guitar right. and it wasn't written on an acoustic guitar. And I, my friend was just really like, what do you mean you can't play it? Like you've been, you've been writing all these songs up to now and now I just can't even hear it unless you play me the recording. That doesn't make sense to me. And I was like, well, it's, it's more about the overall sound and, you know, I'd have to play the recording. And I think he thought I was being pretentious, but I just literally didn't know how to play it. It's funny though now, because obviously this is, I'm guessing you're describing sometime in the... This is like 1996 right, or something. Right, right, When, yeah, I mean, it's not that there wasn't electronic music, but it was like, you know, now it's like, sure, yeah, 60% of songs people are hearing nowadays, the artist couldn't just yeah. play it on on a yeah. on an instrument for them. Or they could, but it wouldn't make any sense, and you would maybe barely recognize it. Yeah. Which can be cool, obviously. Um Oh, so I mean, at the at, during this era, though, when you know you're starting to have a sense of what you want your songs to sound like, what were you listening to? I mean, what were the were there were there friends or slightly older folks, um, you know, around who had projects or were kind of doing a professional music thing in a way that seemed like, oh yeah, there I could do this too. My 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 yeah. buddy's older brother does it, or older sister, yeah, or whatever. Um, really kind of important group of people for me and for Joe um, when we were at school beginning Hot Chip was um, Kieran Hebden Fortet yeah. and he was in a band called Fridge so him and Ardem and Sam were playing as Fridge at school and then got signed to Output which is Trevor Jackson's record label mm -hmm. um, and so they basically left school and had a record out that you could buy in the local record shop that I walked past every day on the way home from school. And that just seemed miraculous to me that you could, like I'd seen them playing in school. It sounded really good. They started to play in a few gigs in like Camden and Kentish Town and then, then they had a record out. Um, so that I remember being very important to me as a kind of thing that I could see with my own eyes as the potential for success of some kind. So it was a tiny label Right, but it meant a lot to me, and uh, I then was really lucky. I mean, Joe and I cared so much about what we were doing, even at that age, that we were proud of it. And I just took a a demo CD into a record shop in Notting Hill Gate in London. Uh, I, I didn't take it in, but I heard them playing some music in the shop that I liked, and I said, "What is it?" And they told me, "Oh, it's something I'm putting out on my own label." The guy behind the counter said. And I said, what, what are they called? And he explained who they were. And it was somebody else from my school who'd only just started in the sixth form. And it was like a sort of um, hardcore, like noisy sort of thing. And I said, oh, um, I, I make music. Can I send you something? And he said, yeah, yeah. So I sent this very early six-track demo to that same tiny label, not the one that Kieran and Fridge were on, but this other label. And they liked that as it is. And, and they said, yeah, we'll put it out. And I so it felt it felt very easy i think i think i just happened to be in the right place at the right time asking the right kind of person who who liked independent sounding sort of lo-fi music that me and joe were making um 
if I'd taken that to a major label, they would have had no interest in it. But right. that particular thing we gave to these people, they, they put it out on Victory Garden Records. It was called the Mexico EP. And we didn't have to change it from what we, you know, they didn't say go into a studio and do that properly. They just put it out as it was. And that was very encouraging in the same way that seeing friends put out a record was very encouraging. It and just that was, it made that it was the world of that was the music you were listening to already at that time. I'm guessing it sounds like you were I was listening you know, listening to digging into independent underground yeah stuff. So I'd listened to lots of older music like 70s soul and stuff that I'd kind of I guess by listening to Prince and then reading back on like what was he influenced by in like old books. Sort of listen to Curtis Mayfield and Marvin Gaye and all the, and also these people I was mentioning like Tim Buckley and sort of that kind of seventies stuff and lots of Miles Davis as well. But then the more contemporary stuff that I liked began to be Palace Brothers and Royal Trucks and Smog and you know these kind of things on Drag City and Joe really liked Pavement um, and I also liked Spaceman Three and Spiritualized. So that was that was an influence and just as we so we put out this EP, the Mexico EP, and then we then we quite quickly moved further towards electronic music um, and dance music and hip hop and I think things like Aphex Twin had always been an influence, but the newer sounds we were hearing that were records produced by Timberland or by Rodney Jerkins that were basically pop records. Those were the things that we really bonded over, and I think garage music as well. UK um, garage, yeah. not to be confused with American garage. No, which I like as well. <laughs> um, but back then, I mean, it was partly that Joe was particularly into these things, and then I would hear them and, get, and be into them too. But he had the skill to program and make sort of rhythm tracks that sounded like the garage records he was listening to, but slightly skewed and, and different from them too. And I would bring melodies and keyboard parts and songwriting to that, and it would end up sounding very different from garage music but yeah. but it was our kind of weird attempt at something like that and were you guys going out you know sort of getting involved with the sort of nightlife and culture surrounding joe was and i wasn't like i would go to gigs all the time like live music but not really clubbing i just was not really interested in it but i would listen to the records and um yeah joe would go to listen to sort of go to like jungle clubs or drum and bass i've never it's strange saying it because I, I DJ in clubs now, but I've never really been a big fan of being in like nightclubs, it, unless it's just the right kind of DJ playing. But just those sort of super clubs and like drug culture and I don't know, it's just not something I particularly click with. So I never really went to loads of clubs um, and I didn't drink at this stage either. So I think I was not really interested in the nightlife in, in that way but I would go to loads of gigs live music and it would be either contemporary bands like the ones I've talked about or Beastie Boys or something like that or Della Soul or it would be modern classical or something that I might go to with my dad or you know lots of like going out to music but not so much clubbing and the only club I really went to was Plastic People which was a really good small club in Shoreditch that's no longer there that I had amazing times going to that, but that felt less intimidating to me than a kind of super club like Fabric or... Oh, my God, I can't even imagine. I literally can't even imagine. Having only... I mean, I've been to... I I have in the past been to, you know, nightclubs in New York that are, you know, like the sort of 
fancy bottle service yeah. where it's like I had to meet someone there yeah. and so and I felt uh, self-conscious the entire way through the experience in a way that I'm like this is actually hilarious maybe I don't know um, but I've n- I've never uh, been to you know sort of a super a super club well now I find myself not all the time but you know DJing in some of those places and just feeling like I've not gone to these places as a punter how have I ended up here DJing to to the audience you know it's quite weird but it's because Hot Chip is a group of people with lots of different interests and crossover of interests and I do really like lots of dance music but maybe just not so much going out to to clubs but but yeah I find it amusing that that and also that most of the time people are confused by me making some less electronic music you know, on my own because I I remember that I made music before I was in Hot Chip and I yeah. feel like I'm just being true to what I've always been interested in. <laughs> yeah. But because Hot Chip has been more well-known than anything else I've done, it's confusing why you would make a piano record or a, or a record with a group of improvising musicians. It's not confusing to me, but... I think people expect me to just I think keep things making are, I think things music. in in, uh, in independent music are they seem a little stricter in the UK than than here in the states. I feel like there's more flexibility to like kind of genre hop or just have like a bunch of th- you know a bunch of different things you do or freeform things. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking in particular of some of the kinds of things that um, the Desners from The National and, and Justin Vernon from Bon Iver put together like these opportunities for people to work on all sorts of genre-less freeform yeah. things yeah. where it's like, no, encourage the you know genre agnosticism or something yeah. like that. Um, but, you know, but maybe that's just a, a more recent thing, you know, in, in any case. What are some of the artists who, as you started to be, to the, the idea of being a professional musician became more and more realistic in school? Like, who were some of the artists that you thought, you know, if I'm lucky, I can maybe try and get to, you know, get to where, where, where they're got. at? Yeah. Um, well, this is, a, again, why it might be confusing to people who think of Hot Chip as very much an electronic group because the role models for me were basically like Will Oldham um, Smog and Royal Trucks as well as liking these people that were so far away from what I was doing like Destiny's Child or you know Whitney Houston or um, Justin Timberlake or Timberland the, the, cl- the things that seemed closer to home to me were these songwriters who were coming out of Louisville, Kentucky, or, you know, Papa yeah. M and Jim O'Rourke. But just watching those people play shows, they weren't playing to, like, huge audiences, but they had a loyal following. And I always loved the records that came out, and I just went to them religiously and still do now. And that was, I guess, where I was aiming to get to. Yeah. Um, and no further yeah, than cause that. Yeah, because, I mean, I like remember going to see those artists in the 90s, and they were, you know, yeah, they were for indie music you know big stars yeah yeah like icons yeah you know uh bill callahan and, and will oldham and yeah elliot smith and and you know other yeah I and mean, i saw him lo- a lot you know well. lo- lo-fi singer songwriters of of that era um 
And so it's interesting because you mentioned a few sort of Chicago-y, Drag City, uh, Louisville-type things. I mean, was there did – did you just get into a major kind of thrill jockey Drag City phase as a, as a teenager? I think that um, Kieran, from for, uh, who is Fortet but was in Fridge at school with us, he somehow heard some of those records, played some of them to Joe. Joe played some of them to me, and I spent all my time with Joe making music. So I just – got into them too um, and also the other ones that I found for myself like Elliot Smith or, or whatever um, and Royal Trucks I would, I would read about music in NME and I would just think well that sounds interesting I'll listen to it I'll buy it I remember buying things you know in this age before you could just hear the whole thing online for free I would just take a risk on something based on a review and then maybe that band would come over to the UK for one show and I'd go to it um, so I did have a, a big phase of that and then Domino were putting out a lot of the Drag City records okay. in the UK. Domino were essentially Drag City for Europe for a long time, as well as having a few acts like the Pastels and some Bristol-based bands that weren't on Drag City. Right. And, and then I, after I finished at university, I got a job at Domino. And so I was even more involved in that scene. What, what was your job? I did like the mail order of records that people bought and I wrote press releases and I wrote and updated the website right you saw how the sausage gets made yeah <laughs> I, I got employed as a bookkeeper and I realized as soon as I got the job that I didn't really know how to do anything with maths involved or spreadsheets and they just kind of let me stay and do other stuff they were really kind to me um because they could tell that I was really enthusiastic and knowledgeable about their their label and you know um so yeah so that I was really into that kind of scene for and st- and some of it What's still. your favorite Will Oldham record or project or I don't know I really like Arise Therefore okay and um Viva Last Blues. Yes, that's my favorite. Um, Will Oldham for listeners. I mean, you can do your Googling. You know how to Google. But um, Palace Music, Palace Brothers, Bonnie Prince Billy in more recent years. Um, a true, wonderful weirdo of, yeah. of music. And we, we Hot Chip managed to do something with him a few years ago where I I emailed him and just said, would you like to sing on this song we made called I Feel Better for a kind of alternative version of it? And, and he was up for it and he sent all of these different um, vocal overdubs that we then turned into a kind of second version of the track, a kind of club club mix. And I think he found that interesting, I guess, because we must have represented something that he doesn't really do, which is electronic dance music, but he knew that we were fans of him and that seemed, I guess, quite a strange thing thing to try and put together and he even like filmed himself for the video for that um on super 8 and all of those things you know the email that i got back from him saying yes i'm up for doing it and then the email with the with the parts he recorded that those were like really a big deal a big deal for me yeah it's it's on on the internet i'm guessing yeah um i feel bonnie is the bonnie prince billy version of i feel better um and so, I mean, when you first started, per, like, writing your own songs and performing them for yourself or, you know, working on working on them on your own, was it immediately that you felt like uh, 
singing was an, was an important aspect of the of the expression of it, or did it take a little while to feel like, well, the singing part feels really good too. It's not just the I'm playing a song I just wrote and I feel good about it, you know. I think the singing felt really important to what I was doing, and I felt like. Um, I felt quite vulnerable singing the things I was singing about um, and yet I felt comfortable as well doing that so it felt very important to me to to be I, I know I've probably used the word direct a lot but I think that the the music that I'm involved with is emotionally direct and I think it was like that from quite a young age and um, that felt kind of good to me and perhaps by listening to people like Smog who would say things that are almost painful to listen to at times I, I think that paved the way for me to feel like that is okay to do that in, in music you know not kind of hide behind um flowery language or you know just kind of and also I, see, I seem to be really into Raymond Carver uh, mm. the writer at the time that I was doing these early sort of bits of writing and, and I felt like that was really sort of direct as well and, and that and this Greek poet that I liked called Kavafi I was quite sort of taken in by how direct and confessional that approach was in Raymond Carver and Cavafy and in Smog Records and Will Oldham a bit less so. It's quite obtuse at times, even though it feels emotional. So I think I felt comfortable singing and like it was what I really wanted to do and I found it quite I liked the sort of juxtaposition of of this voice that maybe is a little bit vulnerable sounding, um emotionally direct on top of by the time Hot Chip got going quite sort of upbeat dance music We took it all We brought them to our land An endless night Ember hot and icy cold The rage of the earth We made this curse Carved it in the blood on our backs We did not see we could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade Two. Play it now with Game Pass. Um, so you mentioned that you're, um, you know, starting to work on on some of the next hot chip stuff. I mean, with that or with, you know, projects outside of that. Do you feel like you have kind of short-term musical goals for yourself at all, or or things that you want to try, or habits that you want to break? Well, um, with Hot Chip, maybe a habit that we've been focusing on breaking is just making records in the way we've made them up to now. So we've always self-produced everything. And we felt like for this record, we should see what happens if we don't do it just on our own. So we've been exploring... Um, working with different producers or, or at least we're really at the beginning stage of that we've done a lot of demoing right. on our own but we're just about to start working with some other people but so that's been important to sort of change things um, but I don't think there's anything wrong with how the records have sounded up to now 
I think we just feel like, well, we kind of know how it will end up if we do everything producing ourselves every single time we make a record. We might be nice to to see what somebody else's perspective helps to bring out in Hot Chip. Right. And with the solo music, a similar thought process, and I guess that happened with this new album. Right, because you worked before, with Tim Goldsworthy, yeah, obviously. Yeah, before going back to starting on Hot Chip, so it probably helped me to think about opening up the Hot Chip. Because was, was this record beautiful thing the first time for your, a solo yeah. record you'd had an outside yeah. producer as well? Wow, okay. So the solo records at first were just made at home and mixed by me and everything was done by me and then the piano one was recorded in a studio with an engineer but he wasn't producing it I was producing it and then this one is the first time of asking a producer to to produce and actually enjoying not only doing that but also thinking about it in in advance of making the record I, I enjoyed trying to work out who to ask and mm-hmm. just listening to loads of records I liked and trying to think like who's going to be interesting to collaborate with in that way and leaving space for them in the process because up to now I'd felt like I had to control every aspect of the solo music perhaps because the solo music was an outlet separate from Hot Chip so mm-hmm. it felt important to to just go away from groups of people and just be on my own and just n- not listen to any kind of rules about how to do anything just, right. just 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 do it on my own and break lots of rules and and enjoy doing things my own way for, for this record i felt like okay well i've done three records on my own and i would like to i would just like to see what happens with somebody else there but also to to get help from somebody else you know yeah I've, i mean and tim obviously is a make completely makes sense as a choice for this and did in the end did it i mean what was the sort of the the key benefit to, to working with him because i know in some cases it's like yeah you worry about seeding control or, or not wanting to col- quote unquote collaborate when it's like well sometimes the producer is just the person who has the vibe that makes you feel like good about what you're yeah. coming up with right i think a few years ago i i wasn't really wanting to work with a producer but maybe the manager I had at the time thought, why don't you do something the next time you do a solo record with a producer? And my fear then was it would be very conventional sounding. I couldn't think of anyone to collaborate with, or, you know, I couldn't, there weren't really any suggestions of producers coming my way that made me think, yeah, that will help to make it interesting sounding. It just seemed like, what if I just end up with a really bog standard sounding? singer-songwriter record with all the right session musicians playing the right notes and accompanying me and that just seemed like a dead end so when I thought of Tim these few years later um, when I was kind of ready to ask a producer um, I didn't really know what he would do I'd worked with him for like a week when him and James Murphy were still working together on a hot chip session so technically there was a time where we worked with the producer, but it didn't. It just led to one track, a remix. Um, and I just remembered the sort of stuff he was doing technically in that DFA session, like the Simmons um, drum pads that he was using and the sound, you know, the kind of the, the sound that he was uh, working on 
and show the equipment he was using and the, the sort of things it was bringing to what we were doing. And initially, when Hot Chip worked with them, I was not really ready for that to have a to have another producer. I just felt like um, our idea of what we wanted to do was one thing, and their idea their idea was something else. And I just didn't understand why we were doing it. But with all these years gone by and having not seen Tim, I, I just had this fond memory of him kind of sitting there and just exploring what certain bits of gear could could do and 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 it seemed quite unconventional and interesting to me and also i heard a recent track that he'd done a remix of that i thought sounded just amazing to me and i hadn't really heard anything by him for a long time i guess he has been less prolific you know than james murphy and he just hasn't been doing quite so much that i knew about so um i got in touch with him having not seen him for for like 10 years or something and uh we didn't really know what we would do together you know my memory of Tim is that he might want to bring this kind of you know the obvious thing you'd expect is like um, the sort of disco punk sort of sound of the rapture or or you know DFA generally yeah but that wasn't what I was hoping he would bring um, but I did but I did want somebody who was a programmer or from a kind of electronic world but when I met him again and we talked about music it it turned out he knew so much about other kinds of records that I really liked that weren't really specifically dance or electronic music or disco or all the stuff he's kind of known for and of course he would know about lots of music you know he, he did lots of stuff before DFA because we're all nerds yeah we all know about lots of stuff um <laughs> but it was it was nice that the things we could talk about weren't obvious to you know we could sh- we could share an interest in certain records that he wouldn't have known I was a fan of and I wouldn't have known he was a fan of and that was just really a good starting point like just talking about records and listening to records together and him beginning to say well what do you actually want this record to be and so there was all this kind of planning stage which I've never had I've just never done that with a solo record or with a hot chip record we've never really I guess we've planned a little bit with Hutchett. We've talked about what we're inspired by, but we haven't really thought about what we what we would like to try and do. We just start making something. Mm. And that was helpful to me to kind of make a playlist, Tim make another playlist. And we didn't make a record that re- really sounds like mm-hmm. the music we talked about, but it was definitely a way of having a coherent plan. Um, and also I felt like he listened to what I was describing being interested in and he listened to the records themselves by these other people that I liked and he could examine them and analyse them and say well this is what's happening in that record this is what you're drawn to um, we talked about Talk Talk and Mark Hollis mm-hmm. quite a lot but we also talked about Spiritualized and um, Brian Eno and George Michael and various rec- and r- he he kind of said to me all of those records that you've referenced that you like other than the Mark Hollis one they're all about artificial reverb and the Mark Hollis one is the only one that is all about the sound in in the room sort of natural acoustic sound mm-hmm. so he said seeing as nearly all of them are this kind of artificial reverb sound that, that that's sort of that's what they've got in common I think we should 
explore that kind of route and the technology that you might use to create those kind of reverbs. Whereas at the beginning, we were talking about going into a church and recording in a place that has natural mm. reverberant sound. And Tim had a really interesting idea, which I, I would hope to do on another record, of um, writing all the songs in advance, him doing some programming, and then we go into a church, which we sort of choose in advance because we like the sort of length of the reverb or the sound in that room. And I perform the songs with a band, but with the electronic elements that Tim would have programmed by that point, playing back through speakers in the church and then you record the whole thing live um, and that sounded fascinating to me and really really good but we just kind of couldn't I don't know maybe we maybe it was that point where he said actually you seem more interested in artificial reverb so maybe that would be a weird thing to do is just go into this church and do it in that way I mean do you think back you know just looking back to when you were first beginning to be obsessed with making music I mean did it would you ever have imagined that this would be your adult life that you're going from making solo album into next thing with your one of your multiple projects that you plan I mean did it even when you were fully convinced you were going to do this come hell or high water did you know it seem possible for it to be this much a robust like vocation full-time vocation it didn't seem impossible, but I hadn't thought through all the stages that were ahead of me. So um, I think what I focused on at the beginning wasn't really live music so much, but just making records. Like if we can make a record and it comes out and there is a small audience for that, that would be satisfying. So that's what I was aiming for. And then we somehow got bigger than those expectations and I didn't have a chance to think about how how sort of surprising that was. It was all just happening, and we were just enjoying it, and still are enjoying it. Um, but I I wouldn't have been able to think so far ahead. I don't think. I think I was just taking it one step at a time. But then with the solo stuff, when that began, I remember thinking I actually really wanted to make something by my own rules lots of the songs were very short like fragments of ideas but that was something I was happy with so only a few of them on Rubbed Out were full songs and the rest were 40 seconds or one and a half minutes and um, maybe they were instrumental and they were improvised or they were a song idea that didn't kind of have a second chorus or a second verse but it all flowed as an album and it it was very much what I wanted to do at the time. But I also wanted it to come out with no press coverage. I just felt like I I remember at the time, and it's quite funny to look back on it now, because obviously now I, I hope that people review and, and know about my records. But we were on a major label. I think I was getting a bit wound up by that process. And I just thought it would be nice to make a record that finds its way to a few people and isn't judged as being something that needs to to be similar to Hot Chip it's just very personal to me and that that was the first album and my friend John Coxon um, has a label called Treader that had up to that point only released instrumental improvised music basically free jazz or improv records but he heard my 
first solo record and really loved it as it was and even though it wasn't an improvised music record and he put it out and I remember it just being a kind of yeah just a, a kind of deliberate way of doing something that was a bit under the radar and I really believed in it and I played shows around it but I just didn't want to be telling everybody about it in the kind of standard way and um, I don't know if I was just a little bit spoilt by being on a major label but I just really felt like I needed to do something that just didn't go through all the same procedural elements that I'd gone through with every hardship record at that point um, and I think that maybe allowed me to do something that to begin doing some solo music that doesn't really seem that close to to hot chip it, it sounds like they're get growing closer and closer they together, are yeah and harder to compartmentalize one from yeah. the next as you get older and and have more experience yeah exactly figuring out your your songwriting or yeah. something. which to me i don't know that sounds to me like the ideal scenario because uh and and i I've, I've heard artists talk about this kind of a process before where you realize that you're doing the compartmentalizing, you know what I mean? That it's all you, it's all going to sound like you. It's anything that comes out of you is going to sound like you. And, um, and that, you know, that is all of a piece or something in a way. Um, on the one hand, on the other hand, I also love when people do like 20 million projects that have like a new name, you know, it's just sort of like, well, if you didn't know about it, they also had this other record, this other name. Um, because that's where, you know, that's where, uh, sort of record nerd digging of the few it's like a gift for future record nerds it's just like that one album you made that one time yeah. under that one name I think that that's all so appealing to me up to a point but now it's just not just for me but like for anyone making music Will Oldham or, or whoever you know it seems so hard to for the these little things that you're doing that maybe are a bit kind of off the beaten track for them to necessarily reach an audience or for a big for a bigger record to to necessarily reach an audience just because there's so much that's coming out digitally to kind of fight against or to how you know i i miss the records sometimes by these other musicians that i have liked whether it's moody man or you know it's kind of dance scene or whether it's will oldham or whoever it is it's quite easy now for records to come out with very little fanfare mm-hmm. and i don't mean to be negative about that but I, I just find that is quite a tricky thing for for anyone to to get their head around it's hard for things to have much time now. It seems like a record is re- is released, and for that first day that it appears on Tidal or Spotify or Apple Music or whatever, it looks like the new record. But then how many people really listen beyond sort of skipping through the tracks once? Unless they're going in and buying an album on vinyl and they feel like they're going to spend some time with it. It just seems, you know, a lot harder to... to for a record to come out and to actually be out there in people's thoughts for like six months or a year or I guess the live shows help but I just feel like records are slightly able to disappear more quickly now than they once were and that's a shame but I don't know what the solution to that is and I feel it myself as a listener to music maybe maybe it's just the obvious thing that everyone talks about of just consuming music through a device that can do so many other things too whether it's your computer or your phone 
how do you fo- how do you focus on on one one thing when it's when everything's sort of vying for your attention the sort of digital noise is vying for your attention so that's something that i i think about just in in relation to what we were talking about before of th- this point where i was actively wanting to put something out that might be kind of for just whoever finds it now it seems like that's that's all you can put out in a way <laughs> yeah well i guess there's some freedom in that though is that you don't you don't have to worry i mean i always think just that the solution is to just it's just because it feels like people may have turned their head for a minute yeah like you just if you're still there when they turn back in that direction then you're like no but i'm still doing i'm still here that <laughs> album's still new yeah y'all but yeah labels make you feel like if it's not a big deal for the if it's not if the six weeks leading up to it and the six weeks afterward aren't the most exciting time of your life that then after that it's just like well i was thinking that today though on my way over i heard an adele song on the radio and I was thinking about her last album and how many great tracks it had and how few of those made their way to the radio. Right. And how long it will probably be before she before she has another album come out re- reasonably. Yeah. You know? And it's just like, well, why are... why? So we went four tracks into an album where I'm just... if I, I'm guessing, if I remember correctly, that 10 out of 12 are bangers, as the kids say. It's like, yeah. what about those... There were so many other songs on that album that will never be on the radio. Instead, yeah. we're still going to hear the same 10 Adele songs we always hear. But, right. you know, I'm sure Adele is like, what a... Hey, guys, we <laughs> thought... We know we thought they're all good, and now some of them, no one... Uh, yeah. But um, I, I just, you know, I think the silver lining is that the ability to uh, hear a little bit of everything um, yeah. and to, for people to find... The, the niche that has something undiscovered that they are obsessed with yeah. it was so much harder before so much easier now yeah. it's like a yeah. beautiful thing <laughs> no pun intended <laughs> um, well I think that's where I'll, I'll leave things with you Alexis okay. thank you so much for thank taking you. the time to sit with me okay thanks thanks all right. Well, thanks again to Alexis Taylor. Such a lovely dude. I'm so glad we finally got to spend some quality time. And um, I'll keep you posted as I hear anything more about that new hot chip stuff he mentioned. Plus, if you want to see one of Alexis's solo shows, maybe bookmark AlexisTaylorSolo.com. Uh, coming up next on LSQ, it's a clip from my archive from the year 2009. You know, the Dave Matthews Band just released a new album called Come Tomorrow, so I figured this was a good moment to share a little bit from my personal Dave Matthews archive. I've actually interviewed him a bunch. First, back in 2005 for a Rolling Stone cover story. Maybe you saw it. They were dressed in baseball uniforms. I still can't quite remember how that gimmick uh, arrived, but anyway... Uh, I spent a few days with the Dave Matthews Band, and obviously the interviews focused on Dave himself. He's just a hilarious and brilliant dude and um, immediately so engaging, and I really enjoyed uh, getting to do that kind of an in-depth situation with him. So I've got a lot of audio of, of Dave Matthews that you know maybe I'll share at greater length, especially if I can get Dave to do a new episode of LSQ, Dare to Dream. So anyway, um, I'm going to play you a few minutes of this interview, which was recorded at the home and studio of producer Rob Cavallo, who you actually can uh, hear in the background uh, chopping produce or something. Apologies for the audio interference there. And it's important to note that Big Whiskey and the Grugrux King uh, is an album that DMB had started recording when saxophone player Leroy Moore was still alive. And then in 2008, sadly, he 
Uh, He passed away following a tragic ATV accident, and then the band finished recording the album without Leroy. In fact, Grugrux is a nickname for Leroy. Um, So as you'll hear in this clip, Dave talks about how much of a huge influence Leroy's spirit was on the making of the album. Let's listen. There's so much Leroy on this record. Leroy said he always talked about honesty of music and that for music to be truly, uh, the, 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 the good, great, great music had to be honest because if you were trying to be honest, you're fake. And I'm guilty of this, I know I am, but when you hit it, you know, you can fall flat on your face and people go, what the fuck is that when you're trying to be honest? But if you manage, it's the most beautiful musical statement that you can make and whether people get what you're doing or not, that's where the music is. And he used to always say, God, to be honest, I just want to be honest. I mean, he wasn't an easy person, but that was one of the things he said. And I think the, thing, the way we started this record, which is just not from sitting in the studio and doodling around for hours. We would do, we would go, if we'd find something, we'd play it, sit on it for 10, 15 minutes, and then stop. We got it. No need to noodle and see who can groove on top of it the most. You know, it was really finding these essential musical statements that came out of thin air. We never said, oh, I'm going to do something in G now. Everyone get their groove on. We're going to play something in G about it. Here, it was never like that. It was just the car was in and go, and then someone would come in, you know, and go, and I'd react. And Roy, or Roy would come out and go, and go, and go, and go, so it's just like that. And then stop, and then do another thing, and just again and again. And so it made these expressions that couldn't, that didn't have any time to be fake. There's like, here, boom, I say this, and then you say this, it's just no time. You have no time to say, I'm so rocking, I'm so killing it. You don't have time. You're just like, where are we going? And off you go. And so from that, creating, trying to make, again, honest statements. And so then my challenge was to write lyrics that I felt, whether they were funny, if I was laughing, and I was thinking, this is hysterical, a camp song, or whether it's something that was surreal, and I don't know what the hell I'm talking about, and it's upside down world, or, whether it's something that I'm, that I'm serious about, anything like that, as long as it's, for me, when I was writing it, as long as it was honest, if some of the songs had lyric and scrap the lyrics, another lyric, scrap the lyrics, you know, throw that away, I hate that. You know, some songs just never, even if they're cool songs, never quite found the place where the lyrics were genuine enough for me to sing. There are absurd statements, you know, that are in the album, and there are, fun statements and their nonsense, but it just, if it comes from my heart and um, yeah. just filtered through me trying to make something out of it, but not trying to make something that sounds like it comes from my heart. Right. But I think trying to say, like trying to get somewhere, trying to do to, to, that doesn't work for me. It works for someone like real craftsmen. I'm not a real craftsman. Um, you know, people that, that are real, that can sit, sit down and go, this is how a song goes. And this is how it changes. This is what I do. This is the emotional. This is the personal. And this is what happens here. This is how you move someone. And this is what gets the people. I can't write like that. I have to write like bleh. That's how I write. You said, you said it one way. It's just like bleh. And that's how I write. And if I, if I don't do that and I go, I mean, sometimes it requires a lot of scratching before you get that good vomit. 
but uh, that's really how I write it's like sort of and that's where this band when it works really well that's where this band is great All right. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of LSQ. Thanks again to Alexis Taylor and Dave Matthews for the time we spent together. And hey, thanks to you for the time we spent together. You're awesome. If you've got any feedback, you can reach me on Twitter at JennyLSQ, on email at LSQPod at gmail.com. Hey, hit me up if you want stickers and buttons. I made some with the old LSQ logo on it. Thanks again, Stugazi, for that logo design. Um, but yeah, I'll send you pins and buttons. No charge for those who've been asking. I mean, you know, I, I just, I'm just happy that you would even brandish an LSQ pin or sticker at all. So yeah, feel free to email me your mailing address. I'll send you some stuff when I, I get new supplies. And come back again for new episodes coming up. Rostam is the next episode in a few weeks. Ben Gibbard of Death Cab for Cutie, Farther Into the Summer, Best Coast's Bethany Cosentino, and more. And, uh, yeah, I guess I'll talk to y'all in a few weeks. Oh, also, one last thing. I just also want to remind you uh, that the wonderful Greta Morgan of Springtime Carnivore wrote and recorded the theme song that you're hearing right now. I love it. I love her. Check out some more of her music. Springtime Carnivore. You can find her on the internets. 